From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson and Senior Reporter for Marketplace Nancy Marshall-Genzer. Welcome Catherine and Nancy. Hello. Great to be here. Here are the issues. President Biden accused Russian President Vladimir Putin of committing a genocide in Ukraine. The president made the accusation in a speech at an ethanol fuel plant in the U.S. state of Iowa, where he blamed the invasion for higher gas prices. Putin vowed that Russia's bloody offensive in Ukraine would continue until its goals are fulfilled and insisted the campaign was going as planned, despite a major withdrawal in the face of stiff Ukrainian opposition and significant losses. And the U.S. is expected to soon provide up to $750 million in additional security assistance to Ukraine. The Labor Department said that its consumer price index, which tracks inflation, increased by 1.2 percent in March and 8.5 percent over the past 12 months, setting another four-decade high last month. The new inflation numbers are ringing alarm bells for the Senate Democratic majority. A former Virginia police officer who stormed the U.S. Capitol has been found guilty on all six charges he faced for his participation in the riot on January 6, 2021. The man accused of shooting 10 people on a Brooklyn subway was arrested Wednesday and charged with a federal terrorism offense. Frank R. James, 62, was taken into custody about 30 hours after the carnage on a rush hour train, which left five victims in critical condition and people around the city on edge. Well, those are the issues. Let's get started. Catherine, President Biden accused President Putin of committing genocide in Ukraine. What has been the response from this on the Hill and even internationally? Well, it's interesting to look at the overall international response to this accusation of genocide because we have some world leaders who have been willing to get out there and say that those acts of murder and of violence, of rape and torture in Ukraine committed by Russian forces are indeed acts of genocide. But we also have to remember that there's a very specific legal definition of genocide. And that's what we heard from the UN Secretary General earlier this week when he was talking about the investigation that's ongoing. And the way he phrased it really was genocide is a very specific designation. It has to be a targeted effort to get rid of a certain group of people. And he said that, well, all of the acts that he's seen so far do fit that definition. They don't want to go that extra step before the investigation is done and call it a genocide. But when we get back to President Biden calling it a genocide, that's really a show of force by the United States saying the U.S. recognizes the atrocities that have been reported in Ukraine. And we're really going to be confronting Russian President Vladimir Putin with the responsibility for those acts. And it's interesting that even President Biden said, look, State Department lawyers may disagree with me and they will ultimately decide whether or not this is genocide. But he said it sure looks like genocide to me. But he was probably giving those State Department lawyers heart palpitations (laughs) when he made those comments. And this is not the first time Biden has kind of gotten ahead of himself or ahead of his administration. Remember, he also said last month Putin cannot remain in power. And then he also called 
Putin a war criminal, and the U.S. has not formally labeled Putin a war criminal. But even if the U.S. does decide that this is genocide, it wouldn't necessarily commit us to anything. We've labeled other things genocide and haven't invaded the country we've accused, but it is a pretty strong label. Right. And well, we wouldn't necessarily and we almost certainly would not commit ground troops to Ukraine. I think it's important to note that Biden is making those moves where he gets out ahead of everyone else on calling out Vladimir Putin, because domestically, initially, he had gotten some pushback from congressional Republicans who said that he had not acted quickly enough to institute sanctions before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, that he was weak. And so when he says these things, he is definitely putting the U.S. out there and showing a strong face and showing that at least his administration is willing to confront Putin on these issues. Yes. And when we are seeing in real time a lot of the atrocities that are being committed with technology and social media, we have to really look at this as being something as serious as perhaps a war crime. But in the end, would Putin actually be formally charged with war crimes? And, you know, I think it is important to note that once we were getting those initial reports of war crimes and possible genocide, there was a real shift up on Capitol Hill that I saw that there was that proposal of a ban of Russian oil and gas imports, the energy imports ban. There was also the trade ban with Russia and Belarus. Initially, there was some Republican resistance to those bans and those sanctions. After we started to see those images coming out of Ukraine, those bills both passed 100 to nothing. So there is an impact here domestically in the United States when we get those reports and when they're seen on Capitol Hill. Yeah. And the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky, says he talked with Biden about more sanctions, more financial aid. And he also said that he and Biden talked about what he called Russian war crimes. The Deputy Defense Secretary Catherine Hicks told reporters that the Pentagon was looking to provide Ukraine with weapons that would give them a little more range and distance. Are these the weapons that Zelensky has been requesting? Well, he would really like warplanes. The U.S. stopped short of that. But the U.S. is giving Ukraine $800 million worth of weapons, including helicopters, also more heavy artillery for the first time, howitzers, some medical equipment and protective gear. And, you know, Congress is out on a two-week recess right now, but I expect when they come back at the end of April, there will be a lot more action from their end on what kind of assistance they can provide to Ukraine. Senator Chris Murphy, who's one of the top Democrats on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was telling reporters just last week that she expects that Congress is going to be allocating assistance to Ukraine throughout the summer, towards the end of the summer and into the fall, as long as this conflict takes. There's a sense that, you know, I think $2.6 billion has already been sent in assistance to Ukraine. We're going to see that number go up significantly. Yeah. And Antony Blinken at the State Department, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, when he announced this additional aid, he said, we're working around the clock. We're expediting shipments of even more arms and even more defense equipment. So he definitely left the door open to more aid for Ukraine. 
also the presidents of four countries on Russia's doorstep visited Ukraine in a show of support for the country. The presidents of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, all NATO countries, are concerned they may face a Russian attack in the future if Ukraine fails. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson also visited Ukraine in a show of support. So it appears Putin is driving Russia further into isolation, but it doesn't seem to really be affecting him. He's still moving full speed ahead. Yeah, and he's still insisting that what he's calling this military operation was made to ensure Russia's own security. He says Russia had no choice. And, you know, he says this will continue, quote, until its full completion and the fulfillment of the tasks that have been set. He may realize that if he fails, his reign could be in jeopardy and He feels like he just cannot fail, but he's also pretty isolated. So it's not clear how aware he is of how things are playing out on the ground in Ukraine. Right. In a sense, that's a very dangerous position to have Putin in because he's aware that all around the world, that invasion of Ukraine is viewed as a catastrophic mistake. It certainly had serious impact on the Russian economy. But in a certain point, there's no going back. He's committed to this invasion So he needs to save face and keep it up. So it's kind of a dangerous position to see where Russian President Vladimir Putin will be going next. And here in the U.S., the latest numbers on the economy came out this week and the consumer price index, which tracks inflation, shows inflation is at an all time high with no signs of letting up. So, Nancy, what are analysts saying is in store for consumers in the months ahead? Well, the the numbers that we have, the concrete numbers we have are for March. So first I'll tell you about what we just experienced, (laughs) as if you haven't noticed. The biggest increase in inflation since 1981, just to give you a couple examples, grocery prices last month were up 10%, the biggest increase since 1981. New car prices were up 12.6%, rent up 5.1%, the biggest spike since 1991. Jet fuel prices were up 23% last month. So the next thing that we could be looking forward to is some of these price increases that we're not feeling directly will be passed on to us. So, for example, the jet fuel price increase, if airlines you know, weren't able to lock in prices ahead of time for fuel, which they do sometimes, they're going to be paying more for jet fuel and they will increase their prices And Wednesday, we got some new information on producer price increases, and those are the prices that manufacturers pay. They're all up. So you can imagine manufacturers are going to be increasing their prices for all the products that we buy also. And of course, it can't be underestimated how much of a moment this is for congressional Democrats. They're headed into a tough midterm reelection race that's going to be happening in November. And those races all really heat up at the end of the summer here in the United States. So they're going to have to go back to their home districts and really talk to their voters, their constituents about what they're doing to really lessen the brunt of this. And, you know, there are some proposals to lessen gas prices. There are ways of addressing some of these issues. But ultimately, when voters go to the ballot box and they think, you know, 
I'm paying that much more for groceries. I'm not able to buy a car. I wasn't able to go on the summer vacation this summer because gas prices are so high. Just as life is getting back to normal post-pandemic, that's really going to stay in the minds of voters. And it's going to be a really tall order for Democrats to make that argument that they've presided over this and they should be reelected and sent back to Washington. And, you know, the thing is, a lot of this inflation is really out of the Democrats control. It's due to things like supply chain snarls from the pandemic. We just saw China put Shanghai in a lockdown. So that stops a lot of production over there. The Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates. It already has started. It's expected to raise them by half a percentage point when it meets next month. And that's in an effort to cool down the economy by making it more expensive for businesses and consumers to borrow. But it's not even clear how much the Fed can do about this because it doesn't control things like supply chains or COVID outbreaks. <laughs> right. And that's the strange way that domestic politics plays out here in the United States is that there's this idea, you know, in part fostered by media that whatever party is in power is responsible for all of these different elements, pandemics, economic situations that really are factors way beyond their control, way too complex to be solved by any one piece of legislation. And yet, ultimately, when voters go and vote, they do weigh those things in very broad black and white terms. So it's a delicate balancing act for politicians here in the United States. President Biden, when he was in Iowa on Tuesday for the first time as president, to announce new efforts to bring down gas prices, which it attributes mostly to what he called Putin's price hike. Are Americans buying it that this is Putin's price hike? No, I don't think they are. And again, this just points to how little really President Biden can do about this. He is going to allow gasoline that has more ethanol in it, which kind of stretches your gas and and makes it go further. It's called E15 gas because it has 15% ethanol, which of course is made from corn. So he's going to allow that to be sold in the summer. But there are only about 2,500 service stations, gas stations across the U.S. that sell this gasoline with 15% ethanol. Out of 150,000 gas stations across the country, only 2,500 even sell the stuff. So that just points to the clear limitations here. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, a former police officer has been found guilty on all charges related to the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol building. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype. BOA congressional correspondent Katherine Gibson and senior reporter for Marketplace Nancy Marshall Genzer. Well, Thomas Robertson, who was an officer in Rocky Mount, Virginia, when he entered the Capitol on January 6, 2021, has been found guilty on all charges. The outcome was another win for the U.S. Department of Justice, which is overseeing an unprecedented investigation into the hundreds of people who stormed the Capitol that day. So, what message? Would you all say this is sending to the other people who have been arrested? 
Well, this is uh, the second case the Justice Department has won involving a jury. It has lost some bench trials that were just before a judge. But, you know, this is definitely a boost for the Justice Department. The jury found Thomas Robertson guilty of six charges, obstructing an official proceeding, civil disorder, entering and remaining in a restricted building, disorderly conduct, violent entry and evidence tampering. So this is a clear win for the Justice Department. Well, and I also think it's very important to look at his actions leading up to the January 6th Capitol riot and particularly in his actions after it. He was one of the people who have been very vocal about posting on social media, as many of the Capitol rioters were. And even afterwards, after the Capitol riot, he was still posting on Facebook that he believes that he's part of an insurrection, that he believes in what he's doing and that is not over regardless of former President Trump's decision to run or not to run in 2024. He posted openly on Facebook that he wanted to make sure that this country would be running in the right way. And he was let out on bail, but he actually started stockpiling weapons while he was waiting to go to trial and had to be jailed in the interim because investigators found out about that stockpile of weapons. So it sends a message to a lot of the other Capitol rioters and anyone who may be affiliated or associated with their ideas that they're being kept an eye on, that their actions on social media are being watched, and that there's a sense that they need to be mindful of their actions. They need to be thinking about whether or not they want to be posting these views openly on social media. Yes, and in addition to the two jury trials so far, two defendants have resolved their cases through bench trials, including a defendant who was acquitted on all charges last week. And then we have still nearly 800 more people to go. So I guess the Justice Department is going to continue to work its way through it, but it seems like it's going to be a long process. There's video of a lot of these people who are going to be standing trial. So keep that in mind, too. I mean, with Robertson, There was video of him wearing a gas mask and holding a long stick, and his attorneys tried to say that was a walking stick. But in this video, he's clearly sort of brandishing it, and there's video showing he even kind of raised it a little bit as police officers approached him. So I think these defendants are going to have a hard time explaining all these videos. There's also an ongoing House investigation led by congressional Democrats who are investigating how the riot itself was planned and executed. And that brings in some of the highest level people in the Trump administration, including former President Trump himself. And there's a lingering question about what they will recommend to the Justice Department regarding charges for some top members of the Trump administration. That's going to put the Biden administration in a really tricky position where they will be accused of looking like they are prosecuting political rivals versus actually carrying out justice and finding some accountability for the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol in two centuries. Keep in mind, if Democrats lose control of the House and or the Senate in the midterm elections coming up this fall, then the January 6th investigation could be disbanded or dramatically altered by the Republicans. They definitely have a ticking clock on this investigation. 
Absolutely. The man accused of shooting 10 people on a Brooklyn subway was arrested Wednesday and charged with a federal terrorism offense. Frank R. James, 62, was taken into custody about 30 hours after the carnage on a rush hour train. So what would you say is going to happen next in this investigation? Well, he's been charged with carrying out a terrorist attack on a mass transit system, and he could face life in prison if he's convicted. There's a bit of a mystery here as to his motive. There are videos of him ranting and raving about various things, including uh, homeless people and you know, saying that New York police will never be able to keep up with all the crime. There's also a bit of mystery as to what led to police finding him. There were some reports that he actually called police and turned himself in, but some other people are taking credit for actually tipping off the police. And I think, you know, this also raises some lingering questions about enforcement and counterterrorism operations in one of the nation's high target cities. We know that there were supposed to be working surveillance cameras on that subway system. None of them captured the attack itself. The New York police officers who are on the train or on the train tracks were not able to respond quickly to this incident, that it was really bystanders calling 911 and performing triage on the victims themselves who were actually able to respond quickest. And this brings up some question, you know, New York is always going to be a high value target for terrorism. Why were so many systems failing in this key moment? I think you're going to see a lot of questions coming up now that the perpetrator has been captured and that we can take a step back and say, well, what were the failures here and why weren't those things addressed beforehand? There are also some questions of gun control here. I mean, the suspect purchased a Glock 9mm handgun, which he used legally in Ohio, and he used it on the train to injure dozens of people. So do we need stronger gun control laws? You know, this actually came a day after the Biden White House had been highlighting the issue of gun control in the United States and had put in some new orders and things like that to try and address some of these loopholes. We've unfortunately become very resigned to mass shootings here in the United States, and we are very, very lucky that so far there are no deaths attributed to this incident because reportedly the suspect is gun jammed. So this could have been much, much worse. Just to get a quick comment on the latest on the COVID mask mandates, the Biden administration will extend the federal mask mandate for all transportation networks through May 3rd, 15 days after it had been set to expire amid a new coronavirus surge fueled by the BA.2 variant. So while there is a surge in the northeastern U.S. and Washington, D.C., Health experts are not as worried about it due to the vaccines, boosters and antiviral treatments. So it doesn't appear either that people are as concerned as they were about COVID previously. Yeah, it's hard to tell with this BA2 Omicron variant, you know, how dangerous it is. There are about 126 new infections per 100,000 people in the Northeast Those are figures from last week, and that's double the rate of a month ago. So we're not seeing the peak that we saw in January when I got sick and my whole family got COVID. We're not seeing anything like that. People are not being hospitalized. But there are some new variants that we're not seeing in the U.S. but are circulating in other parts of the world 
that could be more dangerous and could be more resistant to antibiotics. So people may be letting their guard down now, but they probably shouldn't because we could have some new variants coming into the U.S. And, you know, I remember a similar lull last year at about this time before Delta, before Omicron, where there was certainly a kind of fatigue in terms of the restrictions, in terms of the mask wearing, and people were hopeful that summer would bring a lull in that. And of course, as we know, Delta variant came through. So certainly some concern that that could be the case here with some of those new variants that you just mentioned. And Philadelphia has just reinstituted its mask mandate. Other cities haven't followed yet, but they could. Also keep in mind that some of the official figures for the number of COVID cases might actually be wrong because more people are using over-the-counter rapid tests. And, Mm. you know, you're not calling the CDC and telling them, hey, I just tested positive for COVID. Yes, that is true. I guess we can just say proceed with caution. And we are out of time and we'll have to end on that note. My thanks go to our panelist, BOA Congressional Correspondent Katherine Gibson and Senior Reporter for Marketplace, Nancy Marshall-Genzer. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News. Mm-hmm.